Listener supported. WNYC Studios. When you enter the Hayes Theater to see Brandon Jacob Jenkins' play titled Appropriate, before any actors hit the stage, there's a big screen with the dictionary definition of the word appropriate. Many of the definitions and sentences refer to the word as an adjective, but then when you get to the bottom, you realize it's also a verb, appropriate. The projection signals some of the themes of the play, including that some things look the same but are very different, even if you don't want them to be. The dramedy is a raucous examination of memory, race, and secrets. Three siblings have returned to their late father's sprawling plantation-esque home in Arkansas with different agendas. Sarah Paulson plays Tony, a bundle of sarcasm, pain, and rage who has an unwavering belief that their dad was a good man, even though the siblings find all kinds of inappropriate material as they sort through their father's things. Well, the item's could be appropriate for a white supremacist. The New York-based older brother is judgy and money-obsessed and thinks maybe they could get cash for some of the gruesome artifacts. The troubled estranged brother, younger brother, as in a guy who doesn't seem to get why he can't just hang around 13-year-old girls, says he has returned to make amends and find closure. Tony is not buying that. The family has to deal with ghosts or they will be haunted forever. Appropriate stars Corey Stahl, Elle Fanning, Natalie Gold, and Michael Esper alongside my guest, Sarah Paulson. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you? Hello. Just directed by stage and film director Lila Neugebauer. Hi, Lila. Hi. Hi. And though the plague was staved off broad- stage off Broadway in 2014, this marks the Broadway debut for Brandon Jacob Jenkins. Welcome back, Brandon. Jacobs. Jacobs. Brandon Jacobs. Thank you. <laughs> Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, uh, thank you. Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) We will get that right by the end of the interview. Uh, The play (laughs) is running at the Hayes Theater through March 3rd. Brandon, when you first began writing this play, what was it about? And then when you finished, how close were you to that original idea? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I began writing this play about 15 years ago, actually, kind of in the shadow of a play that was kind of sweeping the New York stages called August Osage County by Tracy Letts, uh, Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award winner. Um, and it, it sort of kicked up all this interesting critical discourse around like the American family drama as sort of the like crown jewel of what we do well over here. And I thought I would try to take a swing at that with a bit of irony because I think what was going unmarked in this formulation was the kind of whiteness of these families. Whereas, you know, we have an incredible tradition here, perhaps a singular tradition in the States of kind of drama by African-Americans, but yet that kind of family drama um, category didn't exist within that pantheon of things, I would say, or didn't exist in an open way. Um, so I began, you know, trying to figure out what that meant. <laughs> it felt like I was kind of making a diorama or like trying to put like a ship in a bottle for a long time. But I would say after like a couple of years of work and with the help of a lot of amazing institutions, like first and foremost, the Signature Theater, where it premiered um, about 10 years ago, I kind of wound up falling in love with the characters and the story and it wound up becoming, you know, it felt something like something more organic than an exercise, I would say. So Lila, you and Brandon have been not only collaborators, but friends for a really long time. Uh, what is something about this play that is uniquely Brandon? Be careful. <laughs> Easy, Lila. Easy, Lila. <laughs> Um, where to, where to begin? Let me endeavor to keep it brief, which is of course difficult because this is 
this play is the product of a singular imagination, life force, and mind in terms of Brandon's particular capacities and his interests. So I think in response to what Brandon himself just described, what I would say out loud is that it's hard for me to imagine another writer who is capable of so successfully, essentially fulfilling and exceeding the expectations and conventions of what we might say is a genre, mm -hmm. satisfying those conventions so thrillingly and also anatomizing that genre at the same time, which is to say there's a lot of ways to be satisfied by your experience of this play. Um, I'm being told my audio is quiet. How's this, you guys? How, how am I now? <laughs> can you hear me now? Um, can you hear me now? Yes, so we can I, hear you now. Yes. Okay, great. So there's that. Mm -hmm. That kind of high wire act feels particularly Brandon Jacobs Jenkins to me. And then I would say that the muscularity of the writing, mm -hmm. the the extent to which the play is willing to explore the furthest reaches of these characters' cruelty and their pain, their humanity, their hilarity is singularly Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Um, uh, I could go on, but mm -hmm. that's a start. Sarah, Tony has, she is a lot and she has a lot going on, as we mm -hmm. discover over the course of the play. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you see in Tony that made you want to play her? Well, for me, the play's the thing. You know, the writing was undeniably, to echo what Lila said, muscular and multidimensional. There was a, an opportunity, I think, for me to play someone who was unapologetic in their convictions, in their beliefs, um, who was also on the face of it presenting with a particular um, affect of defense and uh as you said, sarcasm as 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 weapon. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but the truth is, for for me at least, and this is something that you know I don't dare to say Brandon, you know, um, <laughs> intended or didn't. Although I think he intends all the things that would ever occur to me, of course. But I think this is a woman who, um, at the end of the day, is in a tremendous amount of pain, and who, at the end of the day, I think never learned how to love properly. And her way of loving comes out in a way that many people can't receive. But for her, it is it is what she's doing. She is the, the engine in the car, the love car, as it were, is um, sort of weighted down by all these other things that make it really that make it really hard to see that truth. But I think for Tony and for me as Tony, that is sort of um, undeniable and it was something an opportunity for me artistically to 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 play someone unapologetic um in and 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 who was not worried about being liked and i thought what a wonderful opportunity to play therefore a real person i don't think people walk around wondering how they are and maybe some of them should more than, than they do how they're coming across <laughs> particularly inside their family dynamic you know mm -hmm. particularly and I thought this was just a person, he had painted such a, an indelible uh, portrait of a human being to me that I think on the face of it does present a, with a particular kind of rage. And But I, I see it as a, as a much richer, her as a much richer person. Mm -hmm. 
I want to talk to you all about pacing in this play. Brandon, so, you know, as I mentioned, Tony's a lot, but there's a lot going on. And we discover it, and it's it's revealed slowly over the course of, of the script. Um, and there are, are other slow slow reveals. How do you think about pacing? And how did you want to use pacing to tell this story about this family? Um, well, you know, I think about the fact that, you know, they teach you in the, the-, in the theater – or sometimes they do, that there's two kinds of plays, which is like someone goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town, you know? And, you know, because it's really, you kind of need that audience surrogate to really understand what's happening. But the truth about families is it's not like a, you know, the history that people have in a family goes beyond the lifespans of most of the people in it, right? And so you really can't rush the goods. (laughs) You really, to really understand... I mean, because for me, it was really this kind of intense game of portraiture. Like, I just wanted to feel that these people were real in some way and that they these relationships were real and you could feel their various versions of themselves connecting and disconnecting in any given moment. And you just kind of have to give that time. I don't know. I feel like that was ultimately what it was. It was like to do justice to the characters and to the truth of their circumstances. I needed to, like, give every layer of the onion room to kind of breathe. You know, so that was my attack. You know, I don't, whether or not people love it, I don't know. But that's that was the, the aesthetic engine of it. Lily, then your job also is to keep your audience engaged and the actors engaged as you're having to to work with Brandon's pacing. What was a decision you make? Because directors make decisions. That's what they do all the time. What was a decision you made that involved pacing that turned out to be the right one? Well, First, I'll acknowledge that um, when you say the word pacing, I am thinking of both from a purely technical perspective, the rate at which an event is calibrated musically. But, you know, we're, Brandon, and, and you are also speaking about the rate at which information and psychology is unfolded in front of us. So with regard to the latter, which is a sort of meteor dramaturgical question, I guess what I would say is that there is um, uh, there's there's a clear invitation in this play based on what unfolds to judge these characters and that it struck me as tremendously important that those of us who are inhabiting the play see ourselves as the advocate for these characters, the advocates Mm -hmm. for these characters, which is not to suggest that we shy away from their shortcomings, (laughs) Uh, but in fact that for us from the inside to immediately judge these characters from the outset would in fact be to less meaningfully implicate the audience and would in fact, I think, be to let the audience off the hook from the outset in terms of the ways in which some people in the room might in fact come to see themselves on stage. Sarah, for you. The slow reveals about Tony. I, I won't give them all away, but you know we find out she lost her job. Um, her son has troubles. How did the way that we, the audience, learn about her? How did that impact the way you play her? Because you know her story. Tony knows her story, and we're I just do. getting it piece by piece. Well, my job is simply to play the the truth of the play as it is revealed for the audience. I'm living inside of the. Um, as you described the knowledge, I have all of the history of, of, of Tony's, uh, the events of Tony's life leading up to this moment um, in my mind and in my body and in my heart. There's no question. 
But I think Brandon does a very beautiful thing, which is that you meet Tony kind of full throttle with a surprising event that has happened, which is a return of her, her once beloved and also, you know, her, the, the person she was sort of responsible for raising who has disappeared and he is now back. And that is sort of, you're meeting Tony in a, in a moment um, where you, you might not normally she, she might not normally be behaving the way she's behaving. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're talking about a ratcheting up of, a, of events that cause a particular um, internal boil for her that is, I don't believe Tony's operating level. Um, but Brandon does this wonderful thing where it isn't until I leave the stage in act one that you get all the, the audience has delivered all the information mm-hmm. about me. And so I've behaved the way I've behaved and the audience is witnessing that without the context of my history. Um, and I think it's so deftly done because you basically then are asking the audience to re-engage with their understanding of who this woman is and perhaps to put it somewhere else in their mind or their body while they're watching it, which then I think launches something wonderful for the, for the rest of the play for her. And because I do think sort of to speak uh, to your earlier question about pace in terms of what Brandon's done, you know, that first act goes by like a bullet train and, and it does for us as actors. And I have heard audience members mm-hmm. who might, I know who will say afterwards, you know, that first act you blink and it's over. And then the rest of the play has a different energy and, um, and that is all, of course, by design. And it's, um, I, I think it's, it's a really wonderful thing to have the audience meet this character, as you say, who is a lot. And, um, and then you find out after I leave the stage what, what I've been going through, which sort of yeah. re-engages you with the audience and asks the audience to participate and deal with their own thoughts about what they have decided she is, you know which makes it more of an interactive experience, which in my view is a wonderful, important, meaningful part of attending the, the theater. We're discussing the play Appropriate. It's at the Hayes Theater through March 3rd. My guests are actor Sarah Paulson, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, the playwright, and Lila Neugeburger, the director. So Brandon, this was staged uh, signature in 2014, as you mentioned, and obviously a lot has changed in the past decade. And given that 2020 really opened up conversations about race and people having conversations about race who didn't normally have conversations about race, uh, what was something that you were able to change in the play, update in the play, or maybe even take out of the play that you were excited about? What was a change that you were able to make given how people have become more open to discussing race in the past three years? That's an interesting question. I mean, it, there's been all this kind of discussion about how much I've changed in the play, but in ter- like a lot of it was quite um, uh, superficial. Like it was always like <laughs> rhythmic stuff or like line polishes. And the only two things I really was able to dig in on kind of had very little to do with that theme. But um, but 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 ironically, I think there was a there was much more of a knee jerk desire to read the play as like satire, I would say 10 years ago, which made it so difficult for people to sometimes connect or identify with some of our main mm-hmm. characters. And I did notice that it something about with the way people I think have, th- these questions have become so undeniably personal to so many people. And like, no one's going to pretend that we didn't witness the summer 2020. You know, I feel that um, people were able to I had somehow, it had somehow bought people a, a willingness to really 
listen to these characters as they kind of unpack their own interiors. And there's a scene between Sarah and the amazing Corey Stoll, uh, the characters of Tony and her brother Bo, that's basically a brand new thing um, that I think for a lot of people becomes a real emotional hinge Mm -hmm. for the journey and kind of brings it to a place beyond laughter. And I feel very very grateful to my company, especially this amazing director, Lila Neugebauer, uh, for giving me the space to kind of reinvestigate that in this iteration. Lila and Sarah, I'm curious, I would wonder what your conversations about the way Tony carries herself and her body, the way Sarah uses her body to tell us about what's going on with Tony. Maybe Lila, you could start. Well, I will just say that we have also been blessed with the collaboration. Sarah has, I will let you speak to this. Sarah has a longtime collaborator who joined us on this production. I will, her, I name is, yes, yeah. her name is, her name is Julia Crockett and she's a person that I worked with on impeachment uh, who helped me become Linda Tripp. And I had never worked that way before of using my body as a way of communicating um, interior life you know, in a way that was conscious anyway, or deliberate. Uh, and I had this working experience with her and I have never worked without her since because mm-hmm. it has been an absolute integral way for me now to find a way inside something that sort of separates my, the cerebral component of, of my acting choices and connects me more to the physical, which a lot of times when you're watching something, certainly on stage, you get a physical picture of someone's body that then sort of tells you, I mean, So anyway, Julia Crockett is a person who helped me. And Lila, I was very grateful. And this is something Julia and I have talked about before, because not every director would be so welcoming of a person coming into a room and sitting there and pulling me aside and saying, I want to see more of this tension in your neck. And I want to see it more in your, I want your fist, you know? So we came up with all of these physical communications. Communications to the audience of Tony's tension and internal battle and moments when she wants to reach out and strangle someone and she doesn't. And I can physically communicate that with my body. And so Lila, although is not responsible for crafting that with me, but she what she's responsible for, which is almost more important, uh, is giving the space for that to happen with such collaboration and without feeling threatened or, or if she did, I never knew about it. And it was incredible because it was, it's as personal Mm -hmm. as my intimate relationship with Lila working on the play, because it was that um, necessary for me. And there are plenty of people who would not have uh, encouraged that much less allowed her to come into our rehearsal room and watch us work and help me figure out how to communicate all of that physical stuff. So I love the question just because sometimes I'm out there in the void. I have no idea if it's reading or if anyone's taking it in or if they notice it or if it is telling a story, you know, so I'm, I'm just so I love that. I love that it was something that registered for you. Lila, this may sound a little bit cliche, but the set itself is a character in many ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What conversations did you have with your team about what the set should evoke, what what feelings it should evoke, what it should be filled with? What I would say is cliche or no cliche, uh, that I, that's 100% accurate for this play and production. And I'm delighted that that was your experience. Um, the, the first thing I would acknowledge is that we, I, I worked with, um, uh, now frequent collaborators of mine, the scenic collective dots on this production. But we had a, a really incredible design team on this show um, who were integral in every way to the, the 
mood, feelings, mise-en-scene, every aspect of this production, they are, they are a part of crafting. Um, with regard specifically to the set, those conversations began, they were rooted in dramaturgical research about first and foremost architecture of the period mm -hmm. um, and the region. And we, it was our desire that the architecture uh, reflect that authentically. And then um, uh, without wanting to give anything away, the playwright has written, there's an epilogue in this play mm -hmm. on the page in which um, I, I, things happen in that house after everybody's gone. And the playwright has given us on the page a series of uh, unbelievably transporting provocations that a design team and a director are then invited and prompted to make manifest. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, in terms of what we sought to do, again, I don't want to give anything away, but I would say it's, it is it is an epilogue in its own right. There is a, there's a real trans transformation and um, uh, there's narrative as well. Uh, and, and I would say it's the rare playwright that invites you to continue to create once the actors have left the stage. And, and that's a gift. Yeah, the house has its own monologue. <laughs> yeah, it does. It absolutely yeah. does. Yeah. Brandon, without giving too much away, the central drama, the some of the action around is going around um, really some disturbing things that are found in the father's things that he's left behind. Stuff that I think if so many people saw it, they'd be horrified to see it. And yet every member of the family has a different reaction and they don't get rid of it. Why don't they just get rid of it? Why don't these three kids, adult kids, just say, like, this is bad. We're walking away. <laughs> I think it's because they can't come to a consensus about what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that in some ways the play itself, but also what it's trying to gesture at is just like the weird, like, Rorschach quality to American life and history. And that, like, there's just this, there's no kind of consistent narrative. And so mm -hmm. no one can kind of make action in a way that feels unified, right? It's like everyone wants to march in different directions to do the same thing. And that's something that dynamic is something that I was hoping to kind of, like, out or, or articulate maybe in the play. And, and truthfully, you know what it is, is they, they all kind of have the same ideas, but never at the same time, you know, it's like, and, and then by the time someone's like on someone else's page, the other person wants to do something different with it because they've learned something new about it. And that to me is sort of just the experience of what history ultimately is. Like it takes, it's so easy to treat it as the thing that's very distant from us, doesn't implicate us. But the truth is, it's the story of how we got here, no matter what we're talking about, you know. Um, and then as you kind of begin to realize, suddenly your sense of ego and self is invested in that history. And suddenly you have a point of view on whether or not it disappears. And that seems to be like the constant flow of, you know, the cycles of like American life, you know. Um feels like every 20 years we're kind of revisiting the same thing and not quite dealing with it, you know. So this is that story of like, you know, the past is never the past. It's always going to haunt us and resurface somewhat like, you know, the cicadas that are omnipresent in the work itself. Well, it's, it was, it's really interesting the way the way you write it, that the family just sort of casually talks about how there are enslaved people buried. They just, they just kind of say it and, and move on. What does this tell us? Brandon, about this family's relationship with the reality of their family history. They're like, oh, yeah, they're out there. There are some dead enslaved people. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's well, these enslaved folks 
died many years before <laughs> any of these folks were born, right? Um, and it's funny because I think also people often want to say this is a Southern family, but the truth is that the only person who lives in the South here is Tony, and that's by choice. They all were kind of raised in D.C., which is this kind of contentious part of the country, right. despite being between two formerly slave-owning states. But, you know, um, there's there's a way in which this history is abstract to them. You know, and that it's very easy for them for themselves to put up like psychological boundaries between who they believe they are now and the very soil upon which they were, you know, reared up. Their name began, you know, as a mm. family. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of I can't tell if that's like an easy, easy answer or one that deserves more unpacking. But Tony, uh, Tony, Sarah, <laughs> Tony, call me Tony, Tony, that's Sarah, fine. Sarah. The um, Tony's just so in my brain right now. Um, That's how good she is. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, Tony just easy. Is Tony easy. no? Is Tony easy? Uh, is she? Is she, uh, is she a daddy's girl through and through? Listen, I think when you're a youngish woman and your mother dies and you have two brothers one of whom needs a great deal of care, mm-hmm. the other one who might be somewhat emotionally remote to you. You know, I, I, I think her, I think Tony and her father had a special bond. I do think this, I do believe this, but I also feel there is that feeling. And this is something Brandon and I, and I don't even think Lila and I have discussed, but you know, when you feel like you're in this constant state of loss in terms of your family story and that, you know, when you have one parent who has died and you were sort of a a budding young woman and you no longer had that connection and you had these two boys, men in your life, I think it was probably very important for Tony to have her father be proud of her and, you know, celebrate her and feel connected to to her. Um, But I think at the end of the day, some of it is memory and what you need a person to be, what you need the truth to be so that you can still feel that you have some thing to orbit around. You know, it's like, you don't want somebody to take something else from you. Right. This is something that she has that, that means something to her that helps her identify herself in space and time. And somebody cannot try to casually take that from her. You know, and I don't think she believes, you know, you've said a couple of times and I think people say it a lot, you know, these were her father's things. And my argument is, how do we know that? We do not know that. The cousins had this property for a long time. You know, I, uh, Tony's arguments make a lot of sense to me, but of course they should because that's my responsibility <laughs> to make sure that they do. But um, yeah. So Lila, someone said to me right before we went on, do you heard what happened? Lila went on stage yeah. The other night. Um, what happened? Director on stage? Well, <laughs> in the age of COVID, yeah. you know, the show still's got to go on. <laughs> and you're not the and, first director, right, Lila, to do this? This is no. your now, you joined the, the pantheon of... Yeah, uh-huh. I know. It's a, yeah. it's a pretty good club. I think it includes Sam Gold, Sam Mendes, <laughs> maybe a few other Sams. But maybe you're the only lady. We're going to find Possible. this out now. Possible. Yeah. yeah. So you went on in what part, just so folks can... The role of Rachel. Played by Nat, the great Natalie Gold. 
Well, we hope everybody's feeling better and and but you can and imagine well. what it was you can imagine what it was like for us to sort of turn over and look over at Lila in Natalie's <laughs> dress with like makeup on in a way I'd never really seen on her face and there she is with the pages saying Natalie's lines. It was very surreal and also kind of thrilling, I have to say. I must say the great regret in my life was not being able to see that performance because I was in Chicago yeah. at the time and yeah. From what I heard, I mean, I'm sure Lila must have been so surreal to step inside the like hurricane you had designed. In some <laughs> um, but it was, a, I mean, it's like an iconic effort. I have to say it's pretty unheard of, even even though we're listing these greats. But yeah. I guess, of course, I consider Lila one of the greats. So so there you go. <laughs> it takes a special kind of director, honestly, to, to be willing to do that work. It was amazing. Well, it takes a very special company to to hold you in the full the full hold mm -hmm. of their embrace and and <laughs> and really root you on. I think it was a pretty wild time for everybody in that room. I think you uh, I think yeah. we just watched you relive it. It's just on yeah. your eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just just for us. Uh we got this unsolicited text that says I saw appropriate last week. It is brilliant on par with Arthur Miller and Eugene O'Neill. The acting and direction are amazingly effective in getting lines heard and absorbed. A must see. So that is an unsolicited text Excellent. from one of our from one of I our. I love listeners. an unsolicited text yeah. of praise, and I love it. Thank you, whoever you are out there <laughs> in the dark. And for folks who haven't gotten their New Yorker yet, there's a big old profile of Brandon in the in the current New Yorker, and it drops. And the news was dropped yesterday that you are going to working on an adaptation of Purple Rain. Yeah, which is insane. Yeah, I don't like you know how weird does it get you know to go from this to to Prince you know, but it's it's going to be amazing. I'm so excited that it's the news is out and it's the next big mountain to climb. Yeah, was that a hard secret to keep? Uh. Well, apparently not that hard because you know <laughs> it got out and people are excited. <laughs> Um, but it has, yeah, I've been working on this for a little over two years and mm. stars are aligning and we're very happy so far. I'm working with Mason director Liliana Blaine Cruz, but of course Prince is, how do you capture Prince and not be Prince? I mean, that is just like one of the great existential questions of, of human life. We will stay tuned. Appropriate is at the Hayes Theater through March 3rd. My guests have been actor Sarah Paulson, playwright Brandon Jacobs-Jenkins, and Lila Neugebauer, who is a director and sometimes actor on stage. <laughs> Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Thank Alvin. you, so Alvin. Much. Such much. a pleasure, always. We continue talking about family secrets with Danny Shapiro. She found out her father wasn't actually her biological father and wrote about it in her best-selling memoir, Inheritance. It's a fantastic book. She hosts a podcast about family mysteries, and she'll join me to discuss and take your calls about your own family stories. That's next. <laughs> 